think of the symbolic meaning of that moment. Nations sort of at ideological war with each other, boycotting each other, but the athletes themselves transcending those political divides. That's a story that the IOC would love and has loved over the decade. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another bonus episode of The Games Podcast. This podcast, of course, focuses on the history of the modern games, but one of the beauties of podcasting is that it lends itself to become a platform for perspectives, a place where different views and ideas can be shared and discussed. In the off-season of The Games Podcast, as we wait for episodes covering the next Olympiad, we'll be able to get that diversity of thought through a few interviews. If you haven't heard the first interview with Mr. Ken Blackwell discussing the life of his great uncle, DeHart Hubbard, I encourage you to go back and listen to part one and part two of that conversation. Today, we'll hear from Dr. Matt Andrews, American historian and professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Dr. Andrews teaches many courses on the ways history and culture and sports all intersect. These courses include baseball and American history, race, basketball, and the American dream, And, of course, the Olympic Games, a global history. He also has a wonderful and fascinating podcast on sports and American history called American Sport with Matt Andrews. I've linked his podcast website to this episode's show notes, and I really encourage you to check it out. A few quick notes before we jump into the interview. First, as with previous interviews, this interview has very minimal editing. I took out some ums and uhs here and there, but besides that, what you're going to hear is the same as if you heard the interview live. Second, this conversation took place a few weeks before the Tokyo 2020 Summer Games. So while we talk about some concepts related to the Tokyo Games, we didn't know how those things would pan out once the game started. This is also why you won't hear us comment on any of the events or results from the Tokyo Games. Lastly, this is just part one of three with Dr. Andrews, so tune in next week and the week after for the rest of the conversation. Today, though, we talk about national representation, the politicization of the Games, and Olympic boycotts, and whether or not the Games should have a permanent host. We cover this and more, so without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Matt Andrews. Well, Dr. Andrews, thank you so much for joining me today and being on the Games Podcast. I'd like to start off, if you could please just introduce yourself and let everyone know who you are and what you do. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Olivia. This is great. Um, Yeah. So my name is Matt Andrews. I'm a professor in the Department of History at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, and I'm an American historian, uh, and I teach courses that use sports to explore the big themes in American history. But a few years ago, I branched out a little bit and learned a little global history, and now I uh, teach a course on the Olympic Games, so the Olympic Games, a, a global history. Awesome. Yeah, and, and that class was by far one of my favorites. It's a fascinating class that goes beyond the sports themselves. Yeah. And you know what? Uh, so I, I teach four different courses that use sports. I teach one called Sports in American History. I teach one on baseball and a, a new course, probably since you graduated. I teach a course on race and basketball. 
and I love them all, but I got to say the Olympics is my favorite one. Uh, the Olympic games are endlessly fascinating and they just continue to be fascinating year after year. They are. They're a treasure trove is what I'm finding. So I'd like to ask you, what got you interested in sports and in the Olympics specifically? Obviously, as you just said, they're fascinating, but what made you think this is something that I want to teach a course on? Sure. Yeah. Well, that's only semi-recently. Well, I'm a, I'm a, I've been a sports fan all my life. Uh, I grew up with a father who was crazy about sports. So I grew up going to, um, you know, baseball and football and basketball games, but also a lot of track and field events in the San Francisco Bay area. Uh, Stanford always hosts a lot of big time track meets. So I would go to uh, events there. Um, I went to the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. I was lucky to go there. Watch a lot of basketball and some some track and field. So I've always been interested in sports. And you know, for me, growing up, uh, the Olympic Games was the epitome of, of of sports. Every four years, I wish they'd happened every year. But I suppose they were more special because they were every four years that that music would come in, and I you know I still get goosebumps just thinking about the the music. Um, so I've always been interested in the Olympics. Um, and then uh, when I got my PhD and I, I started teaching courses in American history, Olivia, um, it, well, it's kind of a weird story. I was asked to teach a course called The World Since 1945. Um, and for anyone out there who wants to be a teacher, whenever someone asks you if you can teach something, you just say yes, no matter what, and then you learn it. That's exactly what I did. And I kind of learned how to teach the world since 1945. And it was a lot of work. And I wrote a lot of lectures that I was very proud of. I thought um, South African apartheid, uh, the Cold War, um, African decolonization, all that kind of stuff. And then suddenly they didn't need me to teach it anymore at, at UNC. They, they decided they wanted to have um, other instructors teach it. And I thought, but I, I have all these lectures on all of these topics and it, just a little light bulb went off. I said, oh, I'm just going to teach this stuff by talking about the Olympic Games. Um, we'll talk about the Cold War by talking about the Olympic Games. We'll talk about uh, African independence movement by talking about the Olympic Games. And I, I think it was um, it's one of the best ideas I've ever had in my life because uh, it's a great way to get at all these topics that I think are really important. Let's talk about 20th century China by talking about you know China's involvement in the Olympic Games. And students are fascinated by it. I mean, you've sat in on the class. I, I, there's no class that I teach where students are more interested in the, in the subject matter than when I do the one on the Olympic Games. It's fascinating that the common thread through all of those big moments in history can be and is the Olympic Games. Yeah, every political story out there seems to be portrayed or, or touched upon in one way, shape, or form. Well, you know, and it, it's, I know we're going to talk about this, but this goes all the way back to when Coubertin and the IOC, they decided that athletes had to represent nations. And once you just made the decision that it was nations that were going to be at the Olympic Games, really more so even than, than, than individual athletes in some ways, international politics uh, didn't just rear its head. It just it exploded onto the scene. And in some ways, um, you know, people like to say Avery Brundage famously the moment politics are introduced into the Olympic Games, the games will be over. Nothing can be further from the truth. The Olympics are interesting because they're sports and because they are international politics. Right. 
Right. So since you since you brought it up, let's let's start there with the national representation. From my research about the 1896 games, it seemed that the national representation, the NOCs and that process was not quite set in stone yet. You had um, the Payne brothers just showing up in Athens to try to help. And they were part of the Boston Athletic Association. So they went through their club, but they weren't necessarily going through the you know, U.S. Olympic Committee like athletes today do. Right. So why, what was the change in that? Why did the IOC shift to let's not focus so much on athletic clubs, let's make sure people go through a nation? Well, the idea was that it was going to be nations from the, from the very beginning, but the, the, the IOC is both, and we see this throughout their, their history, they're both sort of ideological and romantic, you know, with, with, with the notion of amateurism, for example, and with the notion of, of, of uh, nationhood. But they've also been very practical, too. Uh, you know, it, in the early games, you just want people to show up. Um, but, you know, it's not easy to get to Greece in 1896 from anywhere other than southeastern Europe. So, you know, they were, they were very flexible, just like Avery Brundage is going to be very flexible later. When, you know, by the rule, the Soviet Union should not be allowed to be in the Olympic Games because their Olympic Committee is controlled by the government and that's against the rules. But you have to have the Soviet Union in the Olympic Games after World War II. What's the point of the Olympics without the, without the Soviets? So, you know, the, the here I think is where pragmatism really kind of wins out uh, over, over everything. And I, I think about 1904, St. St. Louis, where talk about a place that's hard to get to <laughs> the early 20th right. century, right in the middle of this massive continent away from every other nation in the world. I think what France doesn't send a team, Scandinavia, none of the, those nations send a team. I mean, it was all Americans. And so, you know, American identity almost didn't exist in the 1904 games. It was athletic club against athletic club, Eastern athletic club against Western athletic club. So the IOC has been flexible with this, but over time and pretty quickly, you know, by the middle of the first decade of the 20th century, there seems to be a, a, um, a pretty stern emphasis on, you know, athletes will represent nations. And in some ways, it's a brilliant decision because it's what gives the games their immense political and symbolic meaning. But it's also problematic for a number of reasons that we might talk about. And since uh, I think it was 1992, the IOC has allowed athletes to participate as either individual Olympic athletes or independent Olympic participants. And in 2016, they had a uh, refugee Olympic team, which they're going to have again um, right. at the Tokyo Games. Right. Do you are think... Those, are we going to call those the, the 2020 Games or the 2021 Games on this podcast? <laughs> you know, the hashtag I'm seeing still says Tokyo 2020, oh, yeah. but it is 2021, so... Yeah. He wants us to call it the... <laughs> 20 games, but you're in charge. <laughs> I think people will know what we're talking about. But do you think we're going to see this trend expand not just to refugees, but suppose if a country wants to boycott an Olympic Games, hmm. could well, their athletes go through it? They're not. So I guess we can branch into this too. For yeah. example, the Beijing Winter Games coming up, there's talk about whether the US should or should not boycott those games. Right. If they do, 
the athletes, they're not refugees, you know? Right. So technically they wouldn't qualify for the refugee Olympic team, but they wouldn't be able to go through their national Olympic committee because the national Olympic committee isn't sending anyone. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I have so many thoughts. I mean, one, once again, this is a sign of the IOC's pragmatism, right? So the IOC says, oh, you have to represent a nation to compete in the games. Well, you don't. You don't have to represent a nation to compete in the games. And they prove it themselves by allowing the refugee team. And I'm glad they do have the refugee team. It's a nod to the geopolitical realities. And I think I saw the list of the, the refugee team coming up in 2020. Uh, the Tokyo Games is going to be bigger than the one in 2016. And I think there are some actual medal contenders that are going to be on the, on, on the refugee team this time. Um, yeah, let's imagine that the United States boycotts the 2022 Games, which I, I do not think the United States is going to do. But the U.S. has some options there. Um, I'm sure the IOC would want to have many American athletes there. So I could envision a scenario in the future uh, where some nation decides to boycott and the IOC allows, though that, allows those athletes to compete as stateless. I mean, really what they're doing with Russia in a, in a weird way, right? Russia is not gonna be at those games. Um, Olympic athletes from Russia are going to be there. The Russian flag will not be there. And this is because of their state-sponsored doping program. So the IOC knows that more is better. The more athletes we can get there, the better the competitions and the better the games will, will be. So I think this, this emphasis and this insistence on nationalism, the IOC is actually much more flexible than they have suggested over the years. Yeah, they definitely make it uh, make it an interesting story to see whether they are, um, you know, hard lines you have to represent. But as we see, like you said, there are clearly some exceptions. Well, and, and I'm trying to think back to Olivia to, to Moscow in 1980. Um, I, I think the IOC would have welcomed American athletes, even though the USOC was certainly not going to to send them. You know, and then this is when the Carter administration threatened to revoke passports. And so you're just not going to be able to, to go. I mean, think of the symbolic uh, meaning of that moment. Nations sort of at ideological war with each other, boycotting each other, but the athletes themselves transcending those political divides. That's a story that the IOC, you know, would love and, and, and has loved over the decades. So I, I think you raise a really interesting possibility and I think it's, it's exactly that, I think it's possible. I mean, one of the, I guess, optimistic ideals about the Olympic games is that they can cause this worldwide unity, yeah. this, uh, this great moment of peace between nations. But one of the other sides of that is that this idea that the Olympics actually cause more conflict and they, they cause bigger issues. So whether it's the idea that the, for example, the 1897 Greco-Turkish war was caused either in part or perhaps in whole by the 1896 Olympic games in Athens. But then even as you were saying with Moscow and the U S this idea of we're in the middle of the cold war, there's no way Americans are going to go to Russia. Is there credence to the idea that the games cause or instigate, they exacerbate conflict, or 
is that blaming the games that the blame really shouldn't go there? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And in some ways, it's the million dollar question in, in, in the course you took, right? I mean, just what effect do the games have on the course of history, you know, international um, political realities? Do they ameliorate them? Do they exacerbate them? In the end, are they politically meaningless? I tend to sort of fall, uh, think it's the latter of those three options, that they don't actually do that much. Um, maybe that's not a, an exciting answer, but look, I don't think that the games certainly do not lessen international tensions between political leaders. There's no way they do that. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure the United States is not going to have any political representation at the Beijing games in 2022. I'm pretty sure the athletes are going to go, but Nancy Pelosi and others have already said there will be no American politicians there. It's going to be like a, 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 a state's person boycott. And that's not good for our relations with China. Um, can't help. Um, but is it going to make our relationship with China any more fraught? No, I don't think so. It did, did 1980 and 1984 make the Cold War any worse? There's no evidence that it actually did. Did the battle in the swimming pool in 1956 between Hungarian and Soviet water polo players, did it make that relationship between those two countries any worse? How could it have been any worse? They were already at war with each other, basically. Yeah, so I, I tend to think that the Olympic Games and sports in general um, are reflections of the tensions that are out there, rather in any real way worsening those tensions. Um, you know, if there's one example out there, Olivia, it's not from the Olympic Games, it's, it's from the World Cup. Um, there's this famous story of the soccer war between El Salvador and Honduras in 1969, the teams, they were playing each other and the fans started fighting each other. And then like 10 days later, El Salvador and Honduras went to war against each other. And the way that people like to tell the story is it's because the soccer fans were fighting. No, they were fighting because the tensions were already there and those two nations were almost certainly going to go to war already. You know, it's people still call it the soccer war, but that's not really why those two nations went to war. So I think reflection yeah. of the tensions is probably the right word. I think so too. I, there's, from what I saw, I mean, I don't think there's any evidence that the Olympics cause newly created conflicts or spontaneous, a spontaneous desire to go invade someone or go fight someone. Yeah. You know, we like to think that sports have the power to heal the world. I don't think they do, but the, the flip side of that is that they don't really have the power to make the world a much worse place. Um, you know, they, 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 they reflect those tensions rather than affect them in a meaningful way. Right. Right. Going along with this, um, because one of the big issues um, with the games, or at least from the political side, is where the games are being hosted. So this whole talk about do we boycott the Beijing games? Do we not boycott them? Anything like that is because the games are circulatory. They go around the world to whatever country wants to host them. So starting in 1896 and continuing on still to this day, there's this idea that, hey, why don't we 
instead of moving the games, just have them in one place. The most popular one, why don't we keep the games in Athens, Greece permanently? There's also the idea that why don't we have one place on each continent? So, you know, if, you know, North America is hosting the games, they always go to Los Angeles or Toronto or whatever. Do you think that this idea of keeping the games stationary or keeping them within, you know, a limited number of locations, do you think that's possible? Do you think that will happen in the future? Or do you think that there's no changing the format of the games? Oh, well, uh, as a historian, I know that no condition is permanent. I mean, things change. It's hard to imagine the Olympics just being in one place. It's hard to imagine them just being in Athens, um, although it's a, it's a certainly fine choice if you're going to pick one place. I know, um, you know, I have a, um, here's where my, my sort of California roots come in. No, Los Angeles is where it has to be. Los Angeles is the great internet. Well, and Los Angeles can't afford it. You know, Los Angeles, everything's already built so they can do it over and over. But that certainly makes the games a little less interesting. Um, look, I'm, a, as, as you know, Olivia, a, a, a fierce critic of what some nations are willing to do to host the Olympic Games. They're willing to just drive themselves into debt. They're willing to deprive their citizens of health care, of education, of a solid infrastructure. There are so many examples of this. But as someone, you know, kind of, so for example, I'm from San Francisco. And San Francisco bid for the games in 2008. And I was fingers crossed we don't get them. Like, I do, you do not want the Olympic Games coming to your city because your city is just going to be turned upside down and it's going to be construction and um, traffic and you're going to be denied basic services and people are, 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 are catching on to this. But the sports fan in me, the one who's interested in international sports, does like the idea that the games are in a different place. Um, I, you know, uh, I'm excited to learn more about Japan and Tokyo in these games and NBC TV will give us their narrative about what's going on in, in Tokyo. And I think it's interesting. So do I think it's going to happen? I, I think they're going to stay with the system for a long time. Uh, circulatory, as you described it, though the IOC has definitely changed the rules about bidding. You know, you don't have to have brand new everything. You don't have to have a brand new state of the art kayaking and whitewater, you know, center or other to host the games. They're starting to allow regional bids. So not just one city, but a, yeah, one city will be the, have the title, but uh, Germany is the one. It's uh, Rhineland and, and um, Westphalia. They're going to allow this, this bid that's really spread over a few hundred miles. Um, so I, I think we'll see more of that. Um, then again, you know, if, well, the winter games aren't as big as the summer games, but if there's a big international reaction against China, which there's going to be to some extent. And I'm, I'm really interested, like super interested in this story moving forward. Yeah, then it would make sense for the IOC to come up with those four places. But how do you pick them? You know, you said Los Angeles and I said, yeah. And then you said Toronto and I said, no. Um, so... I don't know how you pick, you know, people will be so angry if you have to pick those. And do you do Africa and do you do South America? That's almost more fraught than the current system, it seems to me, picking four semi-permanent hosts. 
though it's not a bad idea fiscally. I think so too. And one of the things that I saw in my research about um, 1980 was uh, Greece was still, you know, almost a hundred years later, still trying to figure out a way, how do we get the games back in Greece? And one of the proposals that they came up with was we will give the IOC these 1300 acres. They're going to be kind of near Athens, but we will give this to the IOC. So it will be neutral territory, kind of going back to the ancient games where they go to a neutral side. And so fighting stops. So the athletes have safe travel and it will be under the IOC's jurisdiction, but the games could be there permanently. Mm -hmm. And so that idea of the IOC having almost its own, its own land, Mm -hmm. um, you know, IOC Island, whatever you want to call it. I like it. Yeah. That, that idea is also an interesting one because that at least tries to remove any sort of political decision from where they host it, because now it's not a nation hosting it. It is the IOC. So do you think that that idea is more uh, reasonable or more likely than the semi-permanent locations? Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, Turkey's not going to like it um, <laughs> if, if Greece gets them all the time. Um, you know, so you mentioned 1980, and I don't know this for a fact, but I, I'd be willing to bet that the United States wholeheartedly endorsed that proposal in 1980, right? Anywhere but Moscow. Right. I'm right. also willing to bet that had that been proposed for 1984, the United States would have said hello. <laughs> the Olympics are going to be in Los Angeles and the United States, the greatest country in the world where they deserve to be all the time. You know, so it, it does point to how it's, it's, it's political expediency. And if you don't like where the games are going to be, like a lot of people, and I think rightfully so, do not think they should be in China in, in, in 2022. That idea makes a lot of sense. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's possible. And the idea of IOC Island where the IOC is in charge, you know, the one thing I would point out is, well, when the IOC hosts the games in your town, they are in charge. They run the show. You, I mean, you, you, you probably know this. You, you, you literally have to basically sign your city over to the International Olympic Committee and say, your rules are the new rules in our city. You know, for, for these two weeks, you're basically in charge. And so if we have a law in Vancouver about freedom of speech and you have a law, IOC, that says you cannot protest the Olympics in an Olympic city, the IOC wins in that battle. I mean, so when the IOC comes to town, they are in charge. But I do like that idea of IOC Island. I, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. And maybe other nations could help the Greeks build their Olympic infrastructure. I, I don't know. What do you think, though? Because, yeah, there is that romantic idea that the games are reviving the splendors of ancient Greece. But haven't we moved beyond that to an extent now? I mean, is Aren't the modern Olympics a truly global and cosmopolitan sports festival rather than thought about as being just a revival of the splendors of ancient Greece? I think so. And I think even, you know, early on, the revived games quickly left the ancient roots. I mean, if, if we're being honest, if they were going to be true to the ancient games, it would be very limited who could compete, first of all. <laughs> um, how, but how, how splendiferous was ancient Rome when women weren't allowed to compete and even go watch the games if, right. they, if they were married? 
Yeah. Right. So, so there's that. So the games have already, you know, left that alone. Um, you know, athletes are closed with, which is another thing. Um, but, but the sports themselves, I mean, if we are trying to stay true to the ancient games, okay, well, we have cycling, we have shooting, we have skateboarding, we're going to have surfing, we're going to have, I mean, the marathon was only the cog- the connotation of marathon was only the location in Greece. It wasn't a race. No. And so we have all these things that are clearly modern. And so, I mean, I think we've already created something that, yes, it has the name Olympic, um, but it is very different from the ancient games. And I think for good reason, but um, I, I, I agree. I think if the, if the idea to go back to Greece is solely tied to the ancient games and the idea of Greece being the birthplace of the games, I think that's a weak reason to go back there. Well, and really what we're exposing here is the, the whole tension of the modern Olympic movement that is both looking backward toward Greece and this notion, which I think the IOC got wrong, about amateurism uh, and about duty and honor, you know, all of these, these things, but also the fact that it was a, a, a modern sports festival that was changing with the times, which means, I'm sorry, you're going to have to let women compete in the Olympic Games. It means you're going to have to let athletes from Africa and stuff compete in the Olympic. And that in some ways, if you boil it down, is the great tension of the modern Olympic movement, the way it's both sort of backward looking and forward looking all at the same time, which we're exposing here. This concludes part one of my conversation with Dr. Matt Andrews. Tune in next week for part two. Thanks for listening to The Games Podcast. The intro music is from Aaron Copeland's Fanfare for the Common Man. The sound effects, transitional music, and theme song are from zapsplat.com. If you have any questions or comments about this episode or any episode of The Games, feel free to reach out via the WordPress site, thegamespodcast.wordpress.com. You can also reach out on Instagram by searching at The Games Podcast and on Facebook by searching The Games Podcast. Bonus material is posted to Instagram and Facebook, so be sure to follow The Games Podcast while you're there. If you enjoyed this episode, I would so appreciate it if you could share it with your friends or leave a rating or review. It means a lot. Thanks for listening and see you next time.